I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys react to the latest drama at the WTO. The U.S. has blocked the selection of a new director general. What does it mean, and what could come next? And we'll break down the U.K.'s first post-Brexit trade deal with Japan. Are they striking out on their own or following in the footsteps of the EU? Plus, with the election just days away, we'll take a look back at the last four years of trade policy. Did President Trump follow through on his promises? Did he accomplish his objectives? We'll talk about all that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, big news at the WTO. There's a nominee, and it was blocked by the United States in favor of another nominee. Tell us what's going on. The Nigerian nominee is the one that was blocked by the United States, and the United States would rather have the Korean nominee. So what gives here? Is there a policy difference? Is it a personality difference? Why is the United States blocking the director general pick? I was really disappointed. I would think we had had more respect for the institution than that. There are two excellent candidates. I think both of them met all of Lighthizer's criteria. It's fine to favor one over the other. I, you know, one can't disagree with that, but to block a consensus and appears to be the only one. The Koreans didn't say anything at the meeting, uh, although they also did not withdraw uh, Minister Yu's candidacy, which is the normal thing to do in this situation. So it appears to be one of two things. On, on its face, it appears to be guilt by association. Lighthizer thinks she's too close to internationalists. She worked at the World Bank, you know, which is a suspicious institution. So Ngozi, the Nigerian, is he believes is too close to international institutions? Yes. yes. And so she can't be the head of an international institution? Well, apparently not. She's too close to Bob Zelik, whom she worked for at the World Bank. She's close to Pascal Lamy, who was one of the directors general back before Azevedo. And that apparently taints her in, in Lighthizer's eyes. There is another interpretation, though, which is this is a strategic move or, uh, well, better, a tactical move to uh, wring some other concessions out of the WTO. You know, we have a big agenda with them on other stuff fixing the appellate body, fixing the definition of developing country, forcing other countries to meet their obligations to report their subsidies. And we're working hard to get a fishing agreement. And somebody I talked to yesterday said, maybe this is kind of a ploy in which the United States is going to end up saying, we'll go along with Ngozi if you give us some of these other things. Grand bargain. Hard to reach by November right. 9th, which and, is the date of the look, meeting. Look, this kind of thing's happened before. It hasn't been quite this dramatic or ugly before. This one, you're, you're right, Bill, does have a feel of, are you now or have you ever been an internationalist? That's not a good look. Now, what I'm not sure is, while the United States is the vocal objector, whether it's the only one. Nobody else recall, said anything. Nobody else right. took the U.S. position. The Koreans, I understand, were silent. They would be the ones you would expect to stand up for their candidate. I think it was also noteworthy that apparently both Japan and China uh, indicated they would support the consensus. And people had had doubts about both of them. In that case, there's usually a path to resolution. It's either a compromise that chooses both candidates, which is what happened when there was a deadlock between Michael Moore 
the former prime minister of New Zealand and the uh, Thailand Super, Super Chai. That deadlock happened. They basically agreed to consecutive terms. They they appointed each a director general for a term and came to consensus that way. WTO always likes to come to consensus. If we're, we're the only outlier and a big outlier, that says to me there's something that can be conceded on another issue, which is your point, Bill, that could resolve it. But we'll have to see how it plays out. To me, the most likely outcome, if, if it's not really a, a game and we're really simply opposed, I think the most likely outcome is delay. The meeting to actually consider this is scheduled for after our election. It's scheduled for November 9th. Everybody will know, we hope, who won <laughs> by November 9th. If Biden wins, I think a lot of countries are going to say, let's just hold a meeting at the end of January. Because, you know, a Biden administration is not going to block consensus in a multilateral institution, which I think is probably correct, you know. So let's just wait. I mean, that's not good for the organization, but it's better than the alternative, which is let's go back and do something strange like they did in 2000 with Moore and Superchai, or let's start all over again, which is another possibility. The other possibility is let's have a vote. The rules allow that, but nobody's ever wanted to do that. The small countries and, and the people that dissent all the time, like India, are probably not going to go along with that because it sets a terrible precedent. As long as you have consensus, everybody has influence, even the smallest country. If you give that up and start voting, then, you know, majority rules means a whole bunch of smaller countries lose out. So you think they'd be willing to wait 95 or so days during the interregnum between the election and, and the inauguration to actually hold a vote in the case well, that in Biden- WTO timetables, that's a no brainer. I mean, that's like an afternoon at the Pearl du Lac in, in Geneva, you know, <laughs> it's a slow moving bunch. Well, it, it's a bubble there. Okay. And, and it's an even thicker, shinier bubble than Washington. And so uh, waiting for a new team is not a problem in Geneva. And keep in mind that the previous director general left the job early. They're kind of out of sequence anyway, but ultimately, if they think they can resolve this just by waiting it out, that's by far the easiest way to resolve it, that nobody has to concede anything. Okay, but let's say Trump wins. Then they got a negotiation ahead of them. Right. And so if it's a negotiation, is this a ploy by the United States to extract some concessions on other WTO issues? We don't know. Well, why not? It could be. People suspect mm-hmm. that. Apparently, there's going to be an effort to find out. The statement that USTR put out yesterday simply defended you and said that she was the better candidate. And it didn't say anything about, it didn't hint uh, at what you just suggested. And so I think it's going to take a little time for this to play out. We'll see what the game really is. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess we'll have to wait. Means we have something to talk about for several more weeks. Yes, exactly. Well, we always have something to talk about. Yeah, but this is gossip. This is great. And you know all these people, so like you know what's going on here. But this is pretty outrageous, though, don't you think? I was very upset about this. You know, we ought to respect institutions. We're a part of them. We really are forfeiting our opportunity to lead and reinforce the institution at a moment when it's got a lot of other problems that we've we've discussed before. And it appears that we are isolated or nearly isolated by suspicion if they had a vote is it would probably be 162 to 2. I mean, the Koreans have to stand up for their candidate. Uh, I think in the the last time, the one that Scott referred to, when there was an impasse, I think it was more equally divided. Yes. And it was genuinely difficult to figure out what to do next because the members were split. Here, they're not split. You know, everybody will go along except us. 
And it puts us in a terrible position. And it sends a terrible signal to the Africans, too. We will pay for this down the road because basically we're dissing Africa. We're dissing everybody that said it's time for an African candidate and said it's time for an African woman candidate. Well, let me ask you guys this. Was this totally unexpected? Because, you know, the coverage leading up to this was, you know, it was humming along, you know, any day now we're going to have a new director general, you know, any day it's going to be the first woman ever to, you know, head the WTO. And then all of a sudden, full stop, breaks on, U.S. holds it up. Was that unexpected to you? I mean, it was unexpected to me, but, you know, I'm not following this as closely as you guys, the trade guys. I'm personally not surprised at all, knowing the personalities involved. Keep in mind, our U.S. trade representative spent 40 plus years as a trade lawyer. This guy's been in more negotiations on a sort of a daily basis than most of us could ever imagine. And so if there's an opportunity for a last concession, that's part of the game. And so the fact that it played out like this, I was interested to read the USTR statement, which as Bill mentioned, is quite neutral. It just basically says we prefer another candidate. It doesn't include the possibility of a resolution, but we're going to have to find out what's behind it. But for me, sounds like Lighthizer. As you just said, that's what's so stark about it too. The statement doesn't say anything other than we prefer another candidate. I wasn't surprised that they favored the other candidate. They'd been telegraphing that for a week or so. And there was a, a story the other day, which I think is true. Cable had gone out from, from the State Department to some of our ambassadors in countries that either had not taken a position on this or that we didn't know what their position was, directing the ambassadors to find out uh, and to encourage them to support Minister Yu. So the U.S. tilt was clear. Uh, what surprised me was that at the end we blocked. And I don't think there was a, a particularly good reason to, to do that. I mean, it, it was really what Scott said, you know, are you now or have you ever been, you know, an internationalist? And it's depressing that it came to that. I don't think that Ngozi said or did anything. I mean, I don't know what she said privately, but I don't think she said or did anything in her entire campaign that would cause, you know, any American to oppose her. I mean, they're both excellent candidates. And so it's disappointing. It's hard for me to think that there's not some other game going on. I guess we'll find out. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. How about let's talk UK, Japan. Britain and Japan signed a post-Brexit trade deal. The key question I have is, given how similar the agreement tracks with the EU-Japan deal, is it fair to say that the UK is striking out with its own trade policy now? Well, in many ways, they have to. The Brexit yeah. made that decision for them. Right. Frankly, Brexit, when it comes to trade policy, is a good news, bad news story. The good news is the United Kingdom returns to what it has been at least since 1849 and the repeal of the Corn Laws, which is an outward-facing maritime nation committed to free trade. They're a principled free trader from way back, and that's kind of their brand character, so to speak. And they'll be able to express that in agreements like this. The bad news is they were in the European Union long enough to rely on the so-called competence of the European communities to do all the trade negotiations. So they had no trade ministry independent of the commission itself. They had all the agreements were essentially folded in. And so they basically had to start over, not completely from scratch. Uh, Britain was a founding member of the GATT. And when the WTO was formed, each separate member state in the European Union maintained its membership in the WTO. So they remained a member, and then the negotiations happened with the customs union, known in WTO parlance as the European communities. So Britain's still a member of the WTO, but they've got to negotiate terms with everybody. Now, 
that's the problem they're facing. And it's a messy, complicated, large workload for a ministry that had to be created out of nothing. Not nothing, because they had people who had served in the commission who were still British government officials. But in any case, what you have here is is at least a sign they're doing something. But frankly, the agreement with the Japanese is positive, but relatively small in terms of the amount of trade it covers. The real enchilada they've got to go after is concluding terms with Britain and the European Union, which is where the bulk of their trade has been. They were part of the single market. And pulling Britain out of the single market is tough on all the traders in Britain. It's got the additional complication of what do you do with Ireland? And all this has to be sorted out and is on a relatively short fuse given the terms of Brexit. So that's the big issue unresolved by the talks with Japan. The agreement with Japan is nice, but ultimately they got a big problem ahead. I think Scott's right about that. I, I, what I, intrigued me, I think, is one of the reasons that this happened fairly smoothly and quickly is because the UK gave the Japanese a reduction in the car tariff, which seems to be one of their primary objectives. I mean, if you look at the Japan-EU agreement, that seemed to me the biggest trade-off. Japan agreed to take some European agriculture, and the Europeans agreed to take their Japanese cars. It sounds like the UK has done pretty much the same thing. So it's not novel. And as Scott said, the analyst projection you know, it was going to increase trade by like 0.7%, yeah. something like that. It's not huge. It leaves them with the important question, which is how do they arrange their relationship with the continent, you know, with the rest of the EU? And how do they square that with the United States, which is, I think, probably their biggest single country trading partner, but mm -hmm. small in comparison to their trade with the EU, which is almost half their total. Well, that's the question I have is why would countries negotiate with the United Kingdom before they ink a deal with the EU? Well, look, in this case, cars is an interesting subject because there are a number of Japanese nameplate manufacturers who have investment auto assembly plants in Britain. One of the reasons I found out about this is my daughter drives a Honda Civic hatchback. And that particular model of the Honda Civic in that particular year was actually assembled in the UK. So is the steering wheel on the right side? No, it's a fully U.S. compliant car. It's a very nice car. Proud of her for choosing it. But I was just surprised to see that it wasn't made in either the United States or Japan. So Japanese nameplate manufacturers do have investments of concern in the U.K. And they want some predictability for the parts and supplies that come in to the extent they can get it. And while Japan doesn't have much control over what the single market talks with the EU amount to, they did have an opportunity to protect themselves this way. So I think there's some positives out there that are not going to show up in trade flows, at least not immediately. I mean, Andrew, I think you ask an important question, which is why would anybody do this before the EU-UK arrangement is settled? I mean, we're trying to do it, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know why the UK wants to do it because they may be locking themselves into commitments that will be at odds with what the EU is going to insist on, and there's far more at stake there. But I think in the UK, particularly with the current government, this is also politically driven. They need to show that they can be their own independent country and accomplish things. And they've launched trade negotiations with a whole bunch of countries. And I think it seems to be politically important to the prime minister to be able to show that we can complete those. You know, we can be on our own and survive. We don't have to be part of the EU. We're going to be better off for leaving, not worse off. And this is all part of that. Now, whether they actually end up being better off, we won't know for years. And 
probably when there's a different government in the UK anyway. And maybe a different government here, which brings me to the next topic. We're looking at an election next week, a historic election. And either way, we're coming to an end of the first four years of a Trump presidency or, you know, possibly the end of a Trump presidency altogether. So let's look back at Tariff Man and let's look back at some of his accomplishments and what he's done actually in trade policy. Has he actually accomplished anything? We've been talking about President Trump and trade policy for years now. And I want to ask you guys, has he set out, these four years have been very dramatic in trade. I don't think, you know, people in the United States have talked about trade this widely ever. And the trade guys were born under this circumstance of tariff man. So has President Trump done what he said he was going to do? Has he delivered? Are we better off? What do you guys think? Well, look, we're better off. We, the trade guys, are better off. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. We got a number one hit show. My career had a great turn for the better, uh, thanks to Tariff Man, because we wouldn't have the podcast audience we have that's had right. this been the issue it was in 2015. Thank you to our amazing audience for sticking with us yes. through all of our nonsense. Oh, but I do mean that sincerely. We would have no purpose for this series without President Trump. Does this but mean we hope he that, wins? Well, I would just say that would be a, a highlight of a re-election of President Trump, for at least me personally, because of four more years of relevance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing to sacrifice relevance for a, a better outcome for the country, but go ahead. Understood. I think, you know, either way, whoever wins, the country is fully aware of trade policy now. Mm -hmm. And everybody is more knowledgeable because of the trade guys. And I think, you know, we're going to have plenty to talk about whoever wins this election. So, don't worry, guys, you will still be relevant. But there's a couple of things that I think are also worth mentioning in this turn of events, as disruptive as it's been and as unpredictable as it's been. One is China. I think that President Trump focused attention on China's practices in a way none of his predecessors did. And it, I think it's led to pretty broad consensus with the American people that China represents a challenge that we've got to deal with. And so he may not have got there the most artful way or have policies that fully reflect sort of the great power dimensions of U.S.-China relations. But he did get there first, and I think he was actually right about that. And that's one that I think will benefit the country on an ongoing basis. Second thing I think it's worth pointing out is throughout his communication about trade, he's kept the faith with the people who supported him in the lead-up to the 2016 election. He kept his faith with the blue-collar workers who thought they'd been ignored. You'll see interviews, and there was, I think, one in the Wall Street Journal this week that I read, which was with coal miners. And basically the story is, he says, we know coal's going away, but this guy stood up for us. All right, And there's a notion of keeping the faith that has been a hallmark of his presidency, and results are no results. And in some cases, when you're pushing against macroeconomic forces of this magnitude— you're not going to change coal and steel and those kinds of things. But there is a sense of he was in the fight. And I do think that redounds to both his benefit and winds up being decent branding and good politics. That's a very good explanation of why those people voted for him the first time uh, and why they'll probably vote for him the second time because he stood up for them. The bottom line is uh, he hasn't helped them. You right. know, coal's not better off now than it was before. Steel's not better off than it was before. There was a blip. It's hard to measure right now because of COVID. Everything's worse off. But if you 
even pre-COVID, you know, it's hard to identify concrete lasting gains that he created. I give him credit for doing one thing very well, and that's what Scott said, is, you know, he changed the agenda. He identified problems, uh, China being the biggest, but not the only one. He identified problems that we have with Europe. He identified problems that we have all over the world and forced everybody else to deal with them. I mean, he's created a royal mess of the WTO. At the same time, you'll find a lot of people both here and in other countries saying privately, he identified serious problems. And, you know, he was right about that. He's right about the appellate body. He's right about the definition of developing country and, and allowing countries to self-declare. He's right about Chinese practices. As we've said on this program many times, you know, right diagnosis, a wrong prescription. His prescription has not solved any of those problems. It's left a bunch of people worse off, particularly the farmers, which he then ameliorated by paying them off to the tune of, I think we're pushing 30 billion now, which means you and I, we've paid them off, the taxpayers, but this is not a successful policy. Uh, it's a successful articulation of the way he would like the world to change. Scott, you want to jump in on that? Well, I, th I think I'd just point out that he's not the first elected official uh, at the federal level to screw up an industry and then pay him off. <laughs> that, that seems to me to be common practice. I'm a little disappointed it happened the way it did. But I do think that once you have identified these problems, solutions actually matter. What you want is to find enduring solutions. It's possible that in either a Biden administration or a second Trump term, that they'll find ways to get more constructive. Second terms usually have a different cast of characters in the cabinet and leading the key policy agendas that often take a different tone and manner, have a different approach. So who knows what evolution will happen there? Yeah, I am i don't believe that for a minute in Trump's case. I mean, I, I was one of the people yeah. who said after he won, well, maybe once the burden of office falls on him and the magnitude of what he's dealing with hits him, you know, he'll become conventional. And, you know, that actually was, he did that for about a year. You know, and then he got rid of everybody that, that disagreed with him, put in a bunch of yes men and retained a few competent people, one of which is Lighthizer, who's mm -hmm. certainly competent. And he proceeded to do it his way. Given his age, he's probably a Frank Sinatra fan. And yes, he that, did it that, his that way. That would be his karaoke song. Yeah. His yeah. Way. And yeah. a second term yeah. is not going to be any different. You know, he has right. one tool in his bag, tariffs, and he has one negotiating approach, which is hit you in the face and keep hitting you on the face until you surrender. Well, so do you guys think that four more years for President Trump will allow him to accomplish his trade policy objectives? No, it's not like taking on other real estate developers in Manhattan. Other countries are sovereign. They have armies, you know, they do what they want. And their response has been to retaliate, not to agree. That's different than the developers in New York? Yes. Well, it's different in this way. And for me, it's the conceptual error of seeing trade negotiations as win-lose, because real estate development in some ways is win-lose. You know, you're the successful bidder for the Grand Central Terminal or you're not. Okay. And that's how he really started his Manhattan career is restoring Grand Central Terminal. But he was a successful bidder. Trade is win-win in every aspect. Individual exchanges don't happen unless both sides benefit from it. And so I think that that is the wrong conceptualization and is one of the reasons that win-lose doesn't really work particularly well in trade policy. Well, doesn't Trump only think in terms of win-lose? Well, I think that's his career. That's his life. And it's hard to change. It's hard for me to change. I'm not as old as he is, but 
or as successful in real estate, but it's tough to change uh, your perspective after a while. He's going with what's worked for him. But I think that's one of the reasons that he has less success in results than he'd like. I am as old as he is, and it is hard to change. But I, I think Scott said it very well. I once had lunch with members of the Iceland parliament, which you don't usually get to meet. And there were several of them. It was a long, complicated, interesting kind of conversation. I thought they would be interested in Europe, but they actually they were more interested in China. But at one point, one of them observed, you know, we've been studying your president, meaning Trump, and we think that he only believes he's winning if someone else is losing. And I think that's really right. That That's his approach. And Scott's right. In the art of, of successful trade negotiations is not only uh, is winning, and letting, but letting the other guy win. And if you're really good, letting him think that he won more than you did. And if you can do that, you're a master. Yeah, that's critical to making agreements stick at the end of the day. You can force a weaker party into, into a concession, but you can't really make it stick unless there's something, some benefit to them agreeing to that final point. We'll see how it works out. Well, all I can say is, Bill, you might be as old as President Trump, but don't go changing. Stay the way you are. <laughs> I'll tell that to my wife. All right, Trey, guys. Well, the next time we talk, we might have a new president. We might have the same president. We might not know who won the election. We'll have something to say about it. You can be sure about we that. We do know this. We will be here and, and we will we'll still be, be the trade guys. And we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about. So Yes, indeed. Until next week. Thanks. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.